Well, on a Sunday that we're preparing our hearts for communion a bit later, let's take time to give thanks for that crown of thorns and that cross and that shed blood and that broken body for our sins that makes it possible possible for us to not be stuck in that old rut, that old way of life, but to experience a new life that God has for us. God, we thank you for your great love that was demonstrated to us on the cross. Thank you that you loved us enough to leave heaven and come to earth to be God with us. Thank you that you loved us enough to take our sins upon yourself, though you are without sin. You're perfect. You're spotless. Thank you that you chose to become fixed in time and space, even though you are eternal and outside of the bonds of anything created. We thank you that your shed blood was sufficient to cover our sins, to deliver us from a meaningless, empty life. We thank you, Lord, today that we've tasted that abundant life because of you. We acknowledge you as our Lord. We thank you that you're our Savior. We open our eyes to see you today. We pray that, God, you would change our hearts in your presence as we go to your word. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us into worship today, for preparing our hearts to go to God's Word together. Um, And so we're going to be today, now typically we're looking at a chapter of the Bible and just walking through uh, a chapter together so that we can all be learning and growing and submitting ourselves to God's Word and digging in and finding some new nugget that we can uh, apply that week. Well, uh, once in a while we do some topical series, which is more of looking at a broad theme over the New Testament. And one of those topics that we're returning to once per quarter this year is that theme of Christian love. What does Jesus mean when he says, a new command I leave to you that you love one another? What does that mean? Because love is a a big, broad idea. And so we're looking at uh, one aspect of love each quarter this year. We looked at affection back in the uh, early winter months, and right now we're looking at Christian friendship. Last week we heard Jesus himself talking about the nature of our relationship with him in John 15. He said he, he doesn't call us slaves any longer, but he calls us friends. And we, we saw one aspect of friendship is that it's two people standing side by side looking at the same truth, uh, looking at that same interest and saying, you see the same thing I do? Wow. And in John 15, that truth is the glory of God that brings us side by side with Jesus as we get on board with that truth, that ultimate reality that God is all glory and all gloriousness and Jesus calls us alongside to say, let's focus on the glory of God together. So we're gonna, we're gonna continue to unpack that theme of friendship because you know there are some hurdles and obstacles and challenges when it comes to the topic of friendship. So we wanna dig into that, be honest about those today. Look at seven aspects of uh, barriers to friendship in the New Testament. You could add to that list, but we'll just cover seven today. And so uh, we're going to be starting out in, in at a, looking at a verse in Romans chapter 12. You can begin to get ready for that. As you're doing that, a couple of announcements that I want to just bring to you that are in your bulletin. Uh, first of all, Looks like we got some sunshine. It might be a good day for eating some ice cream after church. This is good. The, the weather forecast was looking a little, a little iffy. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, we can eat ice cream in the rain. That'll work. And so uh, the ladies' ministry has prepared a, an ice cream social right after church. Hopefully out the doors, down the children's ministry wing, out on the playground, weather permitting. But we'll, we'll call an audible on that at the end of the service. And this is a good way for us to be building those friendships with one another, just having a little bit of fellowship time right after church. Also, this week is the week that the, the youth and all of the youth workers, youth ministry team people are heading out to Kansas for summer camp. 
Uh, yeah, it's got some excitement here. All right. Okay, how many of you are heading that direction? All right. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, good. So, um, and probably some others that are not here. So, I would encourage you, those of us who are not going, to be praying for those that are, that this is really an impactful weekend as they go t- together to focus on uh, digging deeper into God's Word, spending time with Him and with one another, doing some service projects or along the way, maybe plant some trees, I've heard, is, is the rumor there. So, um, yeah, that the soil of their hearts would be prepared, that some roots would go down, there'd be some fruit produced, all those good things. And so they leave on Thursday, meeting at 10.30 at the ministry center, bring a lunch uh, for the road, and then they'll be coming back next Sunday right towards the end of the service. They'll be showing up here at church again. So all the details are there in the bulletin, or you can talk to Pastor Joey or Aaliyah after church if you've got any questions on that. And also, I want to extend a welcome to Marat and Lazat and their family as well. And uh, it's great to have them with us today. They're also going to be around for a month and sharing here at church uh, on the 21st of July. So that's coming up in a few weeks. Um, and there is a fellowship opportunity that day over at the Perry's house. So um, plan to, to be a part of that and get to, to visit with um, both, both Marat and Lazat and also some other friends from uh, our Asia ministry partners there as well. Good enough. Read your bulletins for more information on some other things that are happening. But today we're going we're gonna to look at uh, a verse from Romans 12. One of those challenges and obstacles to friendship is keeping everything at the surface. Shallowness, right? Now, um, there is the, the, the wisdom of a Swedish couple named Oli and Lena, uh, where when it comes to that depth of relationship, Oli said to Lena, I told you on the wedding day I love you. If that ever changes, I'll let you know. Right, and, and there is that reality. We moved here actually from Scandinavia, northern Minnesota, where it's all Finlanders, Swedes, Norwegians. And you know, after 21 years in the same small town, same church, same house, we were uh, preparing to move out here to Colorado a couple years ago in 2017. And what we found out is that all of those friendships that had deepened and grown over 21 years in the same town of 13,000 people, um, every single one of those friends wanted to connect with us one last time before we moved out west. Well, of course, they all waited till like two weeks before moving day, right? Has anyone else experienced this when you've gone through a move? And so we're just slammed with coffee meetings and dinner appointments and people dropping by. And what we started realizing is like we need to maximize these opportunities as we're spending time with uh, people that we've had a depth of relationship and that's it's going to take on a different nature as we move across the country, move out west. And so we started saying the things that we wish we would have said all along in those meetings, in those face-to-face meetings. And looking people in the eyes and saying, this is what I love about you. This is what I'm thankful for. This is what I appreciate. And it was so awesome. And we started going, why don't we do this normally? Why do we keep it, you know, talking about the weather and the Broncos? in our relationships with people, why don't we go deep? Now, you'll, you'll be a bit weird if you can't have the, the, the surface talk and the shop talk that's a part of the fabric of life. It's okay to talk about the Broncos and the weather. But to go deeper in friendship requires that we go beyond just that shallow lever, level of communication. Here's how Paul describes it in his letter to the believers in the church in Rome. Simply in, in chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine 
And he unpacks it a little bit more. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Again, friends standing together looking at the same truth. Let's focus on the glory of God. Let's focus together on the kingdom of God. Let's go deep. Let's be willing in our Christian friendships to let love be genuine. Not just superficial. Not just, oh, good morning, brother. How are you today? Good to see you. God bless you. Bye-bye now. But to go deeper. How are you doing? What's God been showing you? How are you growing? What are you struggling with? What can I pray with you about? Friendship keeps that shared focus, that shared truth in focus. Uh, There's a great little book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. Here's what he has to say about the risk of shallowness in friendships. He says, we picture lovers face to face, but friends side by side. Their eyes look ahead. That is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing. And I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise. Though affection, of course, may. That's a different kind of love that he talks about. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. Friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Does that give you an idea of how genuineness and depth uh, is required in friendship. To have this sort of love develop, it requires that you be moving towards something. Whatever that interest is, whatever that shared common purpose and belief is in marriage, right? Uh, it, there is the beauty of that uh, romantic love that exists where you do look in each other's eyes and that affection that's there. But how much more, more beautiful when that romance develops out of a friendship where you find that soulmate that you, you're looking in one direction, pursuing something, and then you find someone that God brings into your life, and you say, what? You see it too? Or maybe it's the opposite, where the romance is what starts the spark, but then the friendship develops and grows over time, and you, and you learn that aspect of love. And that's not just a love, a friendship love that's confined only to marriage, but within the body of Christ as well. When you see that same truth, the glory of God, you're moving in a particular direction. You're living for the king. And the, the challenge to us as we look at Paul's letter to a church in Rome where there was, the, there was really division that existed. You had believers that had come from Gentile backgrounds where it was okay to eat bacon. And then you had believers who came from a Jewish background where no bacon and circumcision was the way to go. And how are you going to get these two groups of people to get along? That This is the letter to the, church, to the Romans that Paul writes. And there's a lot of practical things that come at the end of that letter. But what he keeps urging them to, to do is to fix your eyes on that common goal that you have that transcends ethnicity, cultural background, gender, race. That common uniting bond of the love of Jesus and focusing in on him, holding fast to the good news of Jesus Christ and the commitment that's required for the Roman believers, Jew and Gentile, and for us right here in Aurora 
is to say, I'm going to go deep with those who share that focus on Jesus, no matter what their background is. No matter how different we may be in other areas, there's a, the potential for friendship, Christian friendship, to grow because of what Jesus has done. To take it beyond just the Broncos and the weather and to go deep with someone else. So that's one barrier that we can encounter is, is the, the temptation to keep it shallow. Another one, uh, and, and we're going to hit three of these right in a row in Philippians chapter 2. So let's turn there together and look at a passage on, on unity within the body and now, another letter by Paul written to a different church, the church in Philippi, and he quickly rattles off three risks to friendship that can exist within the body. So, first of all, he sets the, the, the reminder of what the shared truth is here at the beginning of Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So that, that's the ideal, right? That's the picture that, hey, friends, this is what we're focusing on. This is the truth that we all see and we're all hanging on to. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or from Centennial or from Aurora or from Kazakhstan or wherever you're from. This is the truth that we hold in common. We're looking at Jesus Let's be of the same mind, the same heart, the same purpose. Now here's the warning. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. We'll stop there at the beginning of of verse 3 because there's a caution there. That is one way that friendship can be jeopardized is when there's impure motives that are brought in. When you're doing things but it's out of rivalry or conceit. Uh, this is not the first time it's cropped up in Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you look back a chapter, in chapter 1, Paul talks about this very thing happening uh, with some other ministers of the gospel. So he says in, in 1.15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Doesn't that seem strange? Like you're focused on this same heart, this goal of lifting Jesus high, and yet the motivation is envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, you know, torturing Paul, a fellow minister of the gospel, in some way, in the way that they're preaching. What's Paul's attitude when he realizes this scenario, that there, there is the risk of impure motives creeping in even when we're talking about the goal of lifting Jesus on high? Here's what he says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, so there's a double message here. You know, One, don't be in the category of people who are Pursuing your relationship with Jesus in a way that has, has wrong motives involved. Where you're trying to you know, get, get even with somebody else, stab somebody else in the back. You're missing out on the love aspects of that. But number two, if there's someone else doing that, let it roll off your back like water on a duck. Don't worry about it. Don't get all upset about that. At least Jesus is being proclaimed. Let him deal with their heart. So wrong motives as a barrier to friendship 
Paul keeps a beautiful heart and spirit. He keeps focused on that same goal that he's calling the Philippian church to, that the Holy Spirit is calling us to today to be of the same mind, to participate in the spirit, to have affection and sympathy, to have love be our motivation. There's the potential for friendship developing when we go down that path that's to be preferred, that path of love, that path of obeying Jesus' commands to practice love, to build love, to show the world that we're disciples by our love for one another. Friendship develops down that path and yet wrong motives can be a way that that friendship can be stifled and suppressed. And so the challenge to you and I is that we submit to the Lord the why of all we do. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? Not just what did I say, what did I do, but why? The motive, the heart behind it. And man, that's a, that's a daily struggle. That's a daily path of obedience. That's a daily action of humility, which is the next point that Paul gets into. Another barrier, another challenge to friendship, the end of verse 3. So don't do it out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So that's, again, there's another risk contained in that positive command that Paul gives. Use humility. Go down that path. Don't choose the opposite of that. Don't choose arrogance. Don't choose looking out for self-interest. Don't choose the path of thinking that you are better than the people around you. And this is a virtue that, parents, I urge you to teach your children. This is not a common virtue in our nation, uh, the, the, the virtue of humility. And yet Jesus models it. He teaches it. He exemplifies it. He lives it out, and Paul says, church, we need to be practicing this, learning humility. Virtues are best conveyed by stories, not by dictionary definitions. And stories are best communicated when you live them out and act them out. Parents, there's an awesome responsibility we have to our children to show them what does it look like to be like Jesus who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. And then Jesus makes it practical by getting down on his hands and feet and washing the stinky feet of these guys who walk dusty roads all day long. And he says, if you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's who I am. And if I, your teacher and Lord, am washing your feet, do the same. Let me show you how this happens. Let me build this virtue of humility into my followers. Parents, we've got that opportunity. Grandparents, we've got that opportunity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's live it out. Let's follow the teaching of God's word to not allow arrogance to be that barrier that develops or that prevents friendship from developing. The challenge to us is to follow Jesus' example and to look at one another and say, I put you first. You know, every, every night at bedtime, we give our kids hugs, tuck them in, uh, you know, sometimes those teenagers are staying up later than us, so they're actually tucking us in now. But with the younger kids especially, reading them a story, singing a song, and saying, I love you. Now, I, I got to get back into this habit, but when some of, the, some of our older kids were young, I would, I would mix that up sometimes, and instead of saying, I love you, I would say, I put you first. Because I think that helps to give a definition to what we mean when we say, I love you. Really, that is a better picture of love than what is floating around in our, in our culture and in our world, right? When, when Hollywood says, I love you, they actually mean, I love the goosebumply tingly feeling I have when you're around. It's actually more, I love me than I love you. 
But really, when you say, I love you, in the biblical sense of the word, looking at Jesus as our example, maybe the best phrase would be to say, I put you first. And that's easier said than done. But that's what Paul is instructing and the Holy Spirit is teaching us today. Don't let arrogance get in the way of that friendship love that Jesus is developing within the body and that's going to pr- produce joy and hope and a testimony to the watching world. Well, he continues to build that and really a related uh, barrier to friendship now in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Again, that would be a practical way of living out the humility that is urged there in in verse 3. But there's a risk of making self-interest be the barrier to friendship. If you think about it, really this self-interest is our default setting. It's what we're born with. You know, uh, we we love our little REL age too. Um, Terrible twos definitely are there. But she did not come hardwired to think of other people's interest. Uh, In fact, neither did Heidi and I. Um, And we're still not there. (laughs) But, you know, somehow we've matured enough to be able to keep offspring alive, right? So we're we're looking at them going, oh, you may need to eat too. I'll, I'll take some time out of feeding my own face and think about your needs. But really the default basic setting is self-interest. You know, in REL, uh, she's getting a little bit better. She's got some sign language stuff. She's got some words that she's starting to introduce into her vocabulary. But prior to that, she had one way of communicating those needs. She'd cry. And then it's up to us to figure out what does she want now. Diaper change, to be burped, to be fed, to be held, to be played with. Um, Now she's got some signs so she can communicate and elaborate on those needs a little bit more. But she still hasn't really gotten to the place of meeting our needs yet. (laughs) And that's really a maturing process that hopefully, you know, if if you are going to keep offspring alive, you got to get there someday, right? Where you're able to go, okay, I'm going to go through the sleep deprivation to meet the needs of this other person. I'm going to figure out what they need and meet those needs. And really that is the picture of what Paul is talking about. Let me give you a definition of love that Heidi and I have used in, in pre-marriage counseling. Love is the accurate assessment and the adequate supply of another person's needs. Accurate assessment would be figuring out what are your needs. Adequate supply would be how can I provide for your needs. Now what happens if you've got a couple in marriage that are still in that immature uh, toddler phase uh, you know, it's going to be a lot of noise and unpleasantness in that home. You're going to have two grown-up babies crying at each other and demanding that my needs get met. Uh, what happens if you flip that around and instead you've got two mature, now, adults who have grown up and they're saying, what are your needs and how can I meet them? Well, in the end, really, both couples probably come out the same. Both sides get their needs met. It's just that the more mature couple is a lot more pleasant to be around. There's less high blood pressure in that home. It's more of a joy. And what about in a church where if we grow and we allow 
the example of Jesus to develop within each one of us, that maturing process that is a process that we're all still going through. And there's days that we revert to that toddler phase of crying and screaming and demanding that my needs be met. And then Jesus reminds us of who he's building us to be and the friendship that can develop and emerge is I don't just look out for my own self-interest, but I think, what are your needs? And how is God calling me to meet that? Paul continues on, I'd encourage you to read the rest of Philippians 2, as he says, look at Jesus. If you need a reminder of what I'm talking about here, Jesus is in very nature God, and yet he didn't consider equality with God the thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the nature of a servant, even to the the level of dying, not just dying, but dying a humiliating death on a cross. And if Jesus shows us that example, Who are we to think, I'm going to put my needs first. I'm going to come to be served. That's a barrier to friendship. And yet, the beauty is when we we grow and we allow him to shape us into his image and his likeness, we engage that process. There are needs that are met within the body. There's joy present. There's a lot less crying and demanding and screaming. And there is that, uh, that growth of friendship that is able to develop and occur. Well, let's look at a couple more examples. Now, this is a story in the book of Acts as, as the early church is uh, beginning to go out and, and make disciples and proclaim the good news of Jesus to different regions. So let's take a real quick look at a, at a story in Acts chapter 15 of a time when there was a barrier to friendship, a real practical um, conflict that occurred between a, a couple of these early disciples. So here's the story at the end of Acts chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them at Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so here you have a little story that you could go back and read the context there in Acts 13 where John Mark it doesn't give us a lot, of, a lot of background to why, but he just, at a certain point on the last missionary journey, he's like, see you guys, I'm going home. And for Paul, that was a big enough deal that he said, I am not working with that guy anymore. Now, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. So what, what, what's Barnabas going to do? Well, yeah, let's give him another chance. I mean, this is the nature of who he is. This is his spiritual gift, right? It's packed into his nickname. And there's a conflict that occurs where Barnabas is saying, let's, let's, let's give John Mark another try. And Paul's going, I am done with that guy. And Barnabas is like, shape up, dude. We're Christians. We're focused on the goal of lifting Jesus on high and glorifying God together. And Paul says, I am not working with that guy. Encourager. And in the end, they part ways. Now, maybe you can relate to this story where you've had some conflict in your past, maybe with a fellow believer, maybe a coworker, maybe a family member. And at the time, 
Uh, it was dark. It was unpleasant. But now that as you look at it in hindsight, you can see that even in conflict, God was glorified. Have any of you had God use a conflict with another person as a way of directing you some, to, to get you to where you are today? And now that you look back, you go, I still wouldn't go through the conflict that I went through, but I think God is, actually was glorified. Now at the, as I'm reflecting, I'm not even dead yet, but at this point in my journey, I'm looking back, that conflict could have been a way that God directed and led me and guided me to this point. This happens in the book of Acts elsewhere. Earlier on, uh, Jesus gives a command to his followers in, in chapter one, a promise, the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. You're gonna be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Tarry for a while, go to the upper room, spend some time, wait until the Holy Spirit comes, and then get ready to go and proclaim good news. Well, fast forward a little bit, the day of Pentecost occurs. It's pretty exciting, it's pretty awesome. They've got everything in common. All the people there in Jerusalem are hearing the gospel proclaimed in, their, in languages they can understand. But all of a sudden, the believers are enjoying this time of sweet fellowship together in Jerusalem. And really, they're not getting around to the Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth part of Acts 1.8. And so what does God allow to occur? The next turn in the story of the book of Acts is the martyrdom of Stephen, which none of us would say is a, is a great thing. Seeing a fellow believer stoned to death. Uh, and, and it's not just against Stephen, but great persecution breaks out. And we would all look at that in, in, and, and judge that something horrible and negative and bad. And yet, what's the end result? Believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And now, you know, in places like Ephesus and Philippi and up into Rome itself and scattered all around proclaiming good news and God is glorified even through persecution. Well, here in this story uh, where there's unresolved conflict between some brothers in Christ, that's not the goal, that's not, not the ideal. Like, man, I just can't wait to find somebody to have some conflict with today at the coffee pot or the ice cream table. And yet God is glorified even in conflict that occurs. Two missionary journeys result. And you've got two separate teams of believers going out and proclaiming good news following an unresolved conflict. God is even glorified in the ways that we mess up. Now, now don't make the mistake of saying, oh, that's great, that's, that is the part of the sermon I like because I want to have some conflict with somebody here today. Because it's within the context of, again, a broader theme in Scripture where it says in Psalm 133, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren, brethren, brothers to dwell together in unity. That's a good and pleasant thing. Uh, earlier in, in, in uh, Paul's letter to, to the Romans there in chapter 12, verse 18, there's a command to us. It says, Whenever possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Well, there's some caveats there, right? It doesn't always depend on me. It's not always possible. But as far as I can control situations, I'm going to attempt to live at peace with everyone. Matthew 18. Uh, it's not a chapter on how to kick someone out of church. It's a chapter on how do you resolve conflict. It's a four-step process. If you are in conflict with another brother or sister in Christ or with a, a spouse 
Any, any place where this friendship love, this Christian friendship love has the potential of emerging or of being stifled because of conflict. Four steps. Number one, you go to the person, just the two of you. You talk about it. If, if that does not produce uh, any repentance or any desire to uh, change, step two, bring, a, bring another believer with you. Bring another witness with you that will help to move toward uh, conflict resolution. Step three, if that doesn't work, bring it to the church. Get some pastors involved. Get, a, get an elder involved. Bring, bring it to the church because this now becomes a, a, a brother and sister in Christ uh, conflict that's affecting the whole church family. And so let's get the church involved in helping restore that. Step four, now there's some, there's some uh, differences of opinion on what that means, but step four is treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, now if you're reading Matthew 18 as a uh, four steps to kicking somebody out of church, you'd be like, oh, pagans and tax collectors, we give them the boot. But if you're reading with a kingdom of God mentality and you're reading the rest of the Gospels, you'd realize that, oh, a pagan? That means somebody who doesn't love God, they don't know the truth of God, they're pursuing paganism. Tax collectors, man, they're, the, they're, they're in a separate category from sinners. They're, they're like sub-scum. These are people who need the gospel. And if you've gone through steps one, two, and three with somebody you thought was a brother or sister in Christ and they've been resistant and said, no, I don't want to resolve conflict with you, then all of a sudden you, you realize, oh, they need the gospel. When you treat somebody like a pagan or a tax collector, it means that you now present the gospel to them. You let them know the truth that they're a sinner in need of grace, that Jesus is the only means of salvation, that he intends a radical life transformation because of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And you invite them to respond and to submit and to surrender because then they'll get on board with resolving the conflict that's become a barrier to to practicing that love. Well, what do we do about this hurdle and obstacle to developing Christian friendship? It's each one of us saying, I commit to following Jesus and to resolving conflict with fellow believers. The beauty of the end of the story here in Acts 15 is we learn from one of Paul's later letters that there has been a a restoration where he sends a specific greeting to John Mark. And there's some affirmation included in that. So you can look that up and check that out. But there there is resolution at the end of the story. And that's the beauty of of doing things God's way and seeing the miracles that follow with that. Two more more barriers to friendship that I'd like to to just touch on. And again, uh, these are some some big ones that I I think will will resonate with each one of us. Um, One of them is, is the risk of gracelessness. So it'd be taking grace and sucking it out of the room. Uh, the story that Jesus tells and, and lives out that would, that would exemplify this is in John chapter 8. It's the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And in that story, there's a, a group of scribes and Pharisees who bring this woman to Jesus. And, and they reference the law of Moses. And they say, we need to stone her because of her sins. And Jesus just says a simple phrase. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And you can almost picture these guys, you know, it doesn't say that they've got stones in their hands, but you you get sucked into the story and you almost picture them kind of 
dejectedly one at a time, setting those stones down and walking away. It says the oldest, it says they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I don't know if the older ones, they had a little bit more wisdom or as they're reflecting on their sins, they've had a little bit more life to build up a a good, healthy chunk of sin. Maybe they have some more self-awareness. But those older ones are going, I I can't throw a stone. And they begin to walk away. And there's only two people left at the end. One who is the sinner who is about to be stoned. And one, the only person who actually qualifies that criterion that Jesus set up. Let him who is without sin. It's Jesus himself with this woman caught in the act of adultery. But he doesn't have a stone in his hand, does he? And so he looks to the woman and he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the woman says, no one, Lord. If you remember earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said he didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. So his whole heart and whole goal and whole purpose and mission is salvation, not condemnation. There is a reality of judgment that comes at the end of time for those who don't get on board with his salvation plan. But that's not his purpose, is to come bringing condemnation. And so on that day when he, the sinless perfect one, is standing here, he's not doing it in a condemning way to this woman. She says, no one condemns me, Lord. And then he responds with this, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a picture of the grace of God where he he finds her in her sin and he loves her enough to meet her in that sin but he loves her too much to leave her in that sin. That's the salvation, that's the grace, that's the hope. I hope that when you hear a story like that, it reminds you of your first love, that you can feel this personally, that you can see the Savior looking in your eyes, the one who is without sin, He's not holding a stone. And he says, I love you and I loved you enough to die for you and I give you grace. Even though I could give you condemnation, I give you grace. Because when you've got a hold of that grace and, you, and you're singing a song like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you can sing that and personalize it and own it. It should be an easy matter to then give that grace to someone else. I think it's, it's people who, who have not really grabbed a hold of the grace of God who tend to treat others with that same gracelessness, that same strict, stringent requirement, holding a stone in their hands and looking to find fault, looking to make people pay. But when you really get a hold of grace, it, it affects the way you see others and you want them to experience grace as well. Let that grace that you have received uh, be the, the foundation of Christian friendship, of your relationships with others. Give that same grace that God has given to you. The, the final barrier to Christian friendship that I'd like to dig into today, this is not the comprehensive list. You could find a lot more yourself, and I encourage you to do so. Make your own list as God speaks to you by his spirit and through his word. But this is just a, a broad category that covers a lot of the other ones, right? It's the risk of choosing sin as the barrier to friendship. Now, choosing sin is different from sinning. There's times when we find ourselves in sin and we go, how did I get here? How, what were the, the, 
the steps that brought me to this place. That's different from willfully choosing to go down the path of sin. Here's how Paul describes it in his letter to the Ephesians. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. And in the context, he's he's just gotten done describing kind of the the method of the Gentiles, which is uh, his code word in this in this context for a sinful way of living life. Uh, don't, don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, he starts out. So in contrast to that, verse 20, but that, that whole Gentile way of choosing the path of sin, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Leave all that behind and instead, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, there's days and there's times and there's moments when we all just decide, I'm going to just live in the old me way of living today. Let my mouth say whatever filth comes out of it. Let my heart go after whatever pagan desires it wants. Meditate on impure things. Let stuff come into my ears and my eyeballs that doesn't glorify God. But if you get too comfortable going down that path, it's not long until you realize, I don't look like Jesus in any way. And that's a huge barrier to developing friendship with fellow believers because you know, it would be like, uh, in, in C.S. Lewis's example, friendship can be as simple as an excitement about dominoes. And man, you are just so passionate about dominoes and you find somebody, there's one other strange person here who's also playing Mexican train like every day of the week. And man, you two just get jazzed up because you're both passionate about that. Well, if one of you hasn't touched the, the box of dominoes in like three months, that friendship is going to fall apart, right? Because it was based on this common interest that we see. How much more so when we're not talking about something trivial like dominoes, but the ultimate truth of the universe, the glory of God. And when there's a, a, a friend who loses sight of that and says, I'm going to just go back to the old me, the old way of living where I just lived in the moment, gratified the desires of the flesh, didn't think about becoming like Jesus or the glory of God or making him known. Well, that friendship, that Christian friendship is going to be unsustainable in a hurry. And so the challenge to each one of us is, again, not to find fault, not to bring condemnation and judgment to others, but to personalize it and say, I can't go down that path of choosing to willfully sin. And I, in fact, I need a Christian friend, a brother or sister in Christ to drag me back down the right path from time to time. and go, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What are you, what's coming out of your mouth? What's going through your head? A, a real friend will do that. Bring, bring us back to the path of truth and focusing on that journey to God's new creation that we're all on. Man, salvation, I am thankful for salvation. That point in time when God found me and he drew me to himself and hopefully you've got a spiritual birthday 
that you can commemorate and give thanks to God for and you remember that day when he got a hold of your heart and you surrendered, you saw yourself for the sinner that you were and him for the Savior that he is. And there was a radical life change marked by baptism and that joy that began your salvation. But there's a whole process of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus that that day was only the beginning of. And so that's the journey part, that sanctification part, that becoming like Jesus part of saying, you are the Lord, which means every day submitting to you what comes out of my mouth, what goes into my ears and my eyes, what my mind and my heart meditate on, what I pursue and prioritize. That's the Lordship piece. Choosing sin is incompatible with that. And it's a barrier to friendship. So the commitment for us We want to have friendship, Christian friendship in our homes and in our church is to say, I am going to stay on that journey to God's new creation and I'm going to joyfully walk with Christian friends along the way. Help me. Help me to follow Jesus. Help me raise my kids to follow Jesus and I'll commit the same to you. I I think that song... How many of you learned when you were a child at church, at vacation Bible school or Sunday school, the song, I have decided to follow Jesus? I think that's an American song that may not be super compatible with what I'm teaching you about today. Um, Because in the song it says, though none go with me, still I will follow. That's a really American way of thinking about this whole story. Like, I don't really need the rest of you as long as it's me and Jesus. I'm good to go. That's our radical individualism. Maybe there's some good verses in the song I'm forgetting right now. But I think that's a risk to look at our fellow believers in Christ and say, I don't really need a friendship with you. Just me and Jesus. Man, there's a whole lot of one another passages in this book. I think Jesus is saying you do need the body of Christ. Your relationship with him is fleshed out in the way you love one another. we got to be working on this and submitting to him and saying, God, we need your grace and your help. One of the ways we get to do that this morning is by obeying his instructions as we take communion. This is something we do together. Not, you know, we're not handing out a little wafer and a glass of uh, grape juice for you to take home and go uh, you know, enjoy communion on your, on your own in your home. It's something we gather together to do. And so we're going to do that right now in a practical way of saying, God, we want to be Christian friends focused on your greater glory, giving thanks to you, allowing you to develop a deepening love within us as we move toward greater Christ-likeness. And so you don't need to be a member of our church to join at the communion tables today, but you do need to be a follower of Jesus. And so today, maybe if you're still considering the claims of the gospel and you're, you're looking at Jesus and saying, am I going to follow you or not? You can observe and, there, and there's no judgment from this room. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to join in together today. This will be a way of us saying, I see the same truth that you do. And let's celebrate and give thanks together. So uh, what we'll do is um, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer. And then whenever you'd like to, as a part of your worship, you can come on up to the table Uh, with your family, with somebody in your aisle with you, and just take communion right up here at the table today. So we've got an opportunity to to do it in a new way, in a new building, all right? Why don't we stand together and give thanks this morning?
Lord God, we do give you thanks and praise today. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of the body of Christ. Thank you that that you've gifted each one of us as members of your body. Thank you that you are the head that we look to today. And so, Lord, today, as we uh, remember your broken body and your shed blood, we do give thanks. We thank you for the work that you finished on the cross. We thank you for your soon return, and we look forward to your return. And, Lord, we thank you that we are able to do this together in Christian unity. We pray that friendship, Christian friendship, would be what defines our relationships with one another as we look at the same truth, that you are glorious, that you are the Lord, that we would encourage one another and walk together toward you. We give you thanks and praise now in Jesus' name. Amen.